welcome to Our Friend from Israel, a podcast brought to you by FromTheGrapevine.com. I'm your host, Benjamin Cohen, and each month we'll have a conversation with an intriguing Israeli. They'll come from all walks of life. Actors, artists, athletes, academics, archaeologists, and other newsmakers. On today's show, the host of one of the most popular podcasts to come out of Israel, Mishi Harman. Hi, everybody. I'm speaking to you today from the stage of an opera house at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in New York City. Awarding to listeners that there is mild cursing throughout this hour and on the podcast. We're not going to beep that. And I'm here on an opera house stage with a story that is so small, it almost feels wrong to tell it in a room this grand. That's Ira Glass. The host single-handedly invented a radio genre with his audio documentary series, This American Life. Now, in its 25th year, the show has more than 5 million weekly listeners. They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. When Mishi Harman, a Jerusalem native, first heard This American Life, he knew the format was ripe for adaptation. And so he launched Israel Story. The podcast has grown from a hobby between a few friends to a production that now includes 16 people, including musicians and editors. It boasts listeners from 194 countries and has upwards of 2 million downloads a year. The show recently kicked off its fifth season with stories from Israel, including a mysterious clock heist that went unsolved for a quarter of a century and nationwide protests over cottage cheese. Any culture is best explained by the stories people tell about it. And Mishi Harmon and his team are doing just that. I had a great conversation with Mishi about the cross-country road trip that inspired his popular show, what his goals are for the future, and the strange story behind a circumcision that involved a luxury yacht, a private jet, and international intrigue befitting a James Bond movie. One, two, three. Okay. All right. Uh, okay, so I'm recording here. Uh, testing, testing. Yeah, okay, that looks like it's working. Okay. Hello, hello, hello. Just checking my levels. Okay. I think that should be fine. Yeah. <clears throat> hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I am super excited to have a fellow podcaster as my guest today. I want to welcome Mishi Harman, the co-founder and host of the popular uh, podcast Israel Story. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much. Lovely to be here. You and I are normally recording in studios and other high-end things, but because of the pandemic, we're all recording from home these days, but at least I get to see you on my computer screen, which is nice. Right, right. Where, where are you uh, riding out the quarantine? Uh, I'm in Somerville, Massachusetts, um, mm-hmm. where I've been living for the last two years as my wife um, was at, uh, going to divinity school. And now that she's graduated in all divine, uh, <laughs> we are uh, preparing to go back, uh, back home to Jerusalem. Oh, wow. Very exciting. So I, I, I want to just quickly jump. The, the new season of, the, of your show came out, and the first episode just grabs the listener. You know, you, I think <laughs> you mentioned in the introduction of that episode that it has to do, it's like almost like a James Bond story, and it involves a, a, a luxury yacht, a private jet. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that story? It was such a fun story. During the pandemic, it was sort of one of these uh, feel-good stories. And the story is of a rabbi in uh, Limassol in Cyprus 
mm-hmm. um, a rabbi named Yair Baich, whose fourth child was born, um, if I remember correctly, March 19th or something. So right as the uh, pandemic was really uh, was really uh, sweeping through um, the region. And he, of course, wanted to circumcise his son, but uh, there is no mohel. The person who does the circumcision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no moil in Cyprus, and they usually fly this guy from uh, from Israel to Cyprus. I mean, Cyprus Uh is only like 40 40 minutes away by plane um, to to perform these circumcisions, but uh, he couldn't come because that would... uh, he would have to be in quarantine, and then he would have to be in quarantine upon returning to Israel. And so they were thinking of all kinds of creative solutions, and very quickly they sort of uh, delved into the world of, uh, of, of James Bond films, um, and they thought of having this mid- mid-sea um, yacht rendezvous where the Moel would come on one yacht from Israel, and they would go on one yacht, one yacht from Cyprus, and they would meet you know, in the middle of the sea. International waters or something. Um, and perform the circumcision there. And then that uh, plan um, pretty predictably fell through. And uh, the prime, the president of Cyprus was involved in determining the fate of this poor little baby's uh, uh, penis. And, um, <laughs> and um, at the end, uh, they secured a private jet that uh, flew the family from Cyprus to Israel. And then they performed the circumcision in the airport, but before the passport control, so they never actually entered Israel in any official way, so they didn't have to quarantine in Israel. The Moel never really left Israel, so he didn't have to quarantine. And uh, as far as I know, all, all went well with the circumcision. Yeah, and I was just listening to another uh, new episode. You're doing a lot of corona, obviously. Not surprisingly, doing a, a bunch of corona-themed episodes. I just listened to the one... Uh, where you interviewed the first Israeli to survive Corona, to have Corona and get through Corona and come out. He became kind of a local celebrity, you know, he as did, he walked he out did. of the hospital. It was a fascinating story. Oh, well, thank you. It's in the episode that we released uh, yesterday, um, and it's the story of patient number seven in Israel, who was also, as you as you correctly said, the first um, Corona patient to coronavirus patient to recover. He felt this like deep sense of remorse for having introduced Corona to Israel. He had been on a family trip to Naples, Italy, and um, came back and uh, had a little bit of a cough and tested positive for Corona. And mind you, this is in late February, so you know people people didn't know what that meant. You know, I mean. Right. Um, it was, right. it was my, my, my in-laws actually got the coronavirus uh, really in late February, early March. Are they, and they okay? also didn't. They're fine now. Th- thank God they're fine. They were basically sick at home for two weeks. Um, but it was also at the beginning. I think they went out to a theater with lots and lots of people and, they, and, they, and that's where they got it. But it was again, like you said, it was one of these situations where it was at the very beginning of the pandemic and nobody really uh, thought about it much, you know, as far as catching it. Um, and, and so he felt terribly um, guilty about, you know, potentially spreading this uh, this deadly virus because um, he had come back from Italy and he didn't know. So he went to the supermarket and he went to the gym and he went to restaurants and um, and he wrote this very public apology on Facebook. And this was at a time where there were, as I said, there were only a few uh, Corona patients in, in the entire country. So everyone 
was was tracked. So, I mean, in, in the media, they would report exactly where each one of these corona patients had been at any given moment. And, uh, and, and they were all anonymous and people were trying to guess who they are. And then he came out with this public post saying, it's me. Um, here's all the things that I, I've done over the last few days since I returned from Italy. And suddenly he was inundated with thousands of uh, messages from people asking him if he had been there, if he had been there, if he had been in aisle six of the supermarket or aisle seven, if he had, uh-huh. you know, been at the been at the at this grocery store or not. And um, he ended up being fine, and he was released. and uh, And people didn't even really know what it meant. I think people still don't really know what it means to have recovered from corona i mean there's yeah. more and more research now showing that there might be long-term effects of of having contracted the coronavirus and, and people uh, don't even know how long you're immune right you know from catching it again right yeah um, it's changing every day and then the 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 kicker of this whole story is that it, it it's it seems possible that he actually never had corona to begin with that right. uh <laughs> that it was a it was a false positive it's crazy to have to go through. I mean, he was one of these people that was, you know, in a bubble. Right. You know, it reminded me of the scene from uh, E.T., you know, with all the people in the hazmat suits and exactly. putting E.T. in the tent. <laughs> right. Uh, so I, I kind of dove down in the deep. I started in the deep end here because I'm a fan of the show and I, I was just listening to those recent stories. But let's let's take a step back and talk, tell me a little bit about how you got the idea for Israel Story. Uh, when, when did that happen and, and how did that come about, the genesis of the podcast? Sure. So I uh, am from Jerusalem. I lived in Jerusalem my uh, entire life. Um, and then after my uh, military service, I came to the States for school. And uh, I studied in, in, in America and then went to grad school in England and then came back to America to teach a little bit. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do in life. Um, I remember at that point in time, I was sort of applying to things as as diverse as uh, being a soccer coach in Northern Ireland and being a Mossad agent. Um, <laughs> and okay. uh, neither of those applications went very far. Um, and my father gave me a piece of advice at the time. And he said, well, listen, you know, if you don't know what you want to do, why don't you just continue on the path that you're already on? And that seemed to be um, some sort of academic path. So I decided that I would um, go do a PhD. And it was, um, you know, I'd been abroad for a long time at that point. So I, I thought to myself that it's it's time to come back to, to Jerusalem and settle down. And uh, so I um, enrolled in a PhD program at the Hebrew University. And just before I left, I decided that I would mark the end of this um American uh, phase of life uh, in this period here uh, in some sort of momentous way. So I bought a a 2000 uh, Ford Focus station wagon and I packed all of my belongings, including my dog Nomi, named for my aunt Nomi, um, (laughs) into into the station wagon. Um, I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time. And uh, we went off on this uh, massive... Uh, road trip across America and it was I think a 13,000 mile long road trip and uh, zigzagging between uh, 35 states if I remember correctly and um, I guess if I have one piece of advice to impart to uh, listeners of this podcast it is that if you ever find yourself embarking on such a road trip yourself 
you should take a dog um, because uh, dogs are these amazing um, breakers of social barriers. So it's completely acceptable to come up to a stranger and start petting their dog. And then, right. you know, before you know it, you're in a conversation with them. But if you remove the dog from that scenario, it somehow becomes completely creepy. Um, <laughs> so, uh, okay. so, so the dog really allowed me to in, enter into interactions with all kinds of interesting people uh, throughout America. And it was a fascinating uh, experience for me, a real eye opener. Because uh-huh. even though I had spent a lot of time in America, you know, it was in very specific contexts and in very specific bubbles. And, and, and suddenly I was experiencing these other Americas. And my best friend, uh, Roy, before I uh, embarked on this, uh, on this um, voyage, uh, Odyssey, um, he said, well, listen, you're going to be spending a lot of time in the car. Why don't I download um, episodes of something called a podcast to your phone? Wh- what was year tw- was this? This was 2010. I had just purchased my first um, smartphone. I had never listened to a podcast uh, episode before. Yeah, like the er- very early, I mean, the early days, basically, of the podcast. Yeah, I mean, podcasts existed already. And, you know, This American Life had already been uh, airing for 15 years. But uh, but these the podcasts that existed were more radio shows that were also available as podcasts. Just repackaged as podcasts. And he downloaded um, many episodes of This American Life to my phone. And I um, sort of forgot about it, basically. I was listening to a lot of books on tape. Uh, I was listening to music. At some point, uh, I hit the Bible Belt, and it was all uh, these uh, evangelical Christian um uh, radio talk radio uh, shows which were fascinating to me and uh, sort of very different than anything else that I had heard before. Then outside of Vicksburg, Mississippi, I uh, decided to listen to my very first podcast episode, which was an episode of This American Life. And um, I didn't really know it at the moment, but uh, this was this was a, an instance that. Um, really changed my life and, and put it on a, put me on a new trajectory. What was so special about this was that even though I was sitting in a car and uh, just listening to voices coming out of my earphones, I was magically being t- transported into all these uh, lives of Americans whom I'd never otherwise meet or encounter. And, you know, one minute I was with um, illegal Salvadorian immigrants picking uh, avocados in uh, Southern California. And the next moment I was in a boardroom on Wall Street with billionaires making uh, making deals. And it was just dizzying and exciting. And all I could think about was, wow, we really should try to replicate something like this in Israel. When we return, Mishi recalls the excitement of publishing their first episode. Plus, he reveals just how long it takes to put together one episode. We used to say that it took us about a thousand hours to create each hour of, uh, of oh radio. <laughs> I would say that now it takes us much more than that. All that and much more after the break. Now that our friend from Israel is back from hiatus, we're excited to share a whole new batch of episodes with you. In the months ahead, we'll be having conversations with tech gurus, actors, and even a clown who works at a hospital. For example, if I see a kid in the bed, that the doctor comes to the room and needs to examine and to ask him questions, or the nurse come and give him some uh, medicine that he needs to take, 
So as a clown, the first thing that I want is to take these kids out of the bed, to bring him childhood back, to give him the opportunity to choose to do what he wants. Those interviews and many more will be coming soon in your podcast feed. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Our Friend from Israel on your podcast app to ensure that you're alerted right when new episodes are released. And now, back to our conversation with the host of the Israel Story podcast, Mishi Harmon. So radio is actually a very popular medium in Israel. However, radio is very, very different. It's, you know, very, very news oriented. Um, uh, it's, you know, these sort of aggressive interviewers with an open <laughs> mic yelling. Um, yeah. Kind of like our, our talk radio. Right. right. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, talking to the same members of a rotating cast of the same, you know, two or three hundred people who are like in the public sphere politicians, intellectuals, professors, celebrities. Um, it's always very aggressive. Um, people talk over each other. Um, and we wanted to tell the kind of stories that This American Life was telling, which was, you know, which are these sort of carefully produced human interest stories. Um, and um, so several months later, I got back to Israel. Um, I got together with three of my closest childhood friends. We'd all grown up together in Noam, which is the youth movement of the uh, Masorti, or conservative movement in Israel. Um, and we had all remained very close friends. And we decided to embark on this project together. And you know, there was only one small problem, which was that um, none of us knew anything about radio or journalism or media. It took us about a year to produce our very first episode. We got in touch with This American Life and we went to New York to uh, to observe their process. And oh, wow. They were, that was nice um, of them. Yeah, they were, they were you know, very supportive. Um, and we essentially had to teach ourselves everything, how to record, how to edit, um, how to write for radio, who our target audience was going to be. And um, then the following year, we're now in 2012, we released our very first uh, episode. And um, we had very, very humble hopes for this episode. How many uh, people listened to that first episode? <laughs> well, I remember that we, when we pressed release, uh, when we pressed sort of publish, uh, we, we did it somewhat ceremoniously. And I think we, we were four friends, as I said, that were uh, doing this project together. And we each had a uh, partner and uh, two parents and we said well we can at least count on 12 listeners <laughs> and i think of those 12 we've got 11. Um, <laughs> one of the dads bailed on us but really uh really um it was it was very uh, underneath the radar um yeah. no one was aware of this uh, we put it on our facebook uh profiles i remember our tremendous excitement when uh for the very first time. I mean, there were so few downloads that we really, we, we, we knew who each download was. Wow. So wow. Uh, I remember how excited we were for the first time when there was a download by someone who wasn't a family member or a lover. Um, and, um, but we were, you know, it was a creative project for us. We were all doing other things at the time. This was sort of a late night hobby. When you were adapting This American Life for Israel, what, what if anything, had to change in that, in that uh, translation, so to speak, in that in the in the format, did anything have to change, or or was it? 
Well, I mean, to begin with, we had a hard time because we, you know, we no one knew where the podcast was. Um, yeah, I mean, we did follow the format pretty closely. We did have acts. We and you know, at the end of the day, what is this American life? It's um, sort of a combination of storytelling or entertaining storytelling and journalism, and it's really just applying the tools of journalism to everyday lives and situations. So yeah. I remember those early episodes, there was one about a uh, professional whistler, there was a, a messianic cow, I talked about, I think, uh, Israel's uh, growing medical marijuana industry. Did, did you have a, f- a favorite? I mean, I know it's like picking your favorite child, <laughs> but does, does one stick out for you that you really uh, are proud of? From those early episodes? Yeah. We happened upon a story very early on. So we produced a whole season in Hebrew. Um, before we moved on to English. Um, Because what essentially happened is we had this pilot on the radio and um, then thousands and thousands of listeners uh, wrote in saying basically variations on the same thing, which is, you know, my name is Itzik, I'm 55 years old and I live in Yerucham. And uh, last night while listening to Sipur Israeli, um, to Israel story, I uh, was the first time in my life that I, you know, did the dishes or took the dog out or went for a run and actually listened, really listened to the story of a Bedouin girl from Khura or a Russian immigrant working as a night uh, watchman uh, at a parking lot in in Ashdod or an ultra-Orthodox woman from Tzfat. And that was exactly what we were trying to do. We were trying to expose Israelis to other other Israelis that they wouldn't otherwise interact with in real life. And there's a lot of production and it's not like this podcast where it's just one-on-one interviews. I mean, you guys have you guys it's like very NPR in the sense you're going out in the field recording background audio, you know, the, the marketplace or wherever that person is, you know, you have a lot of um I don't know, effects may not be the word, but you have a lot of audio which makes you feel more like you're immersed in the storytelling, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, basically, I think the best way to explain it is to say that it's like a documentary film, just in an audio version. We used to say that it took us about a thousand hours to create each hour of, uh, of <laughs> oh <my God>. radio. <laughs> I would say that now it takes us much more than that. Um, wow. wow. And, uh, you know, there are stories that we follow for months and in certain uh, extreme cases, even for years, uh, doing interview after interview after interview um and uh we have many 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 hours of tape for each interview i mean what you end up hearing in the story is a tiny tiny fraction of the tape that we collected and as as the years have gone on we started doing a lot more fact checking a lot more research um we started writing original music for the show and basically the 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 um, origin of the uh, of the English show was that uh, we decided um, after doing a whole season in Hebrew that we wanted to do this project in English as well which was somewhat of a counterintuitive uh, idea because we were essentially creating the American version of the Israeli version of this American life <laughs> yeah. and also now you know we were we were basically one of the first uh, podcasts in Israel so it was a novel thing, and almost everything we did was was interesting because it was it was new. Here we were sun- suddenly, you know, entering into a market that included all of the shows that had gotten us hooked on the world of podcasts to begin with, in- uh-huh. including This American Life. 
and we knew that we had to up our production value and it had to be it had to sound similar and we were lucky to partner with uh, tablet magazine and um soon also with soon thereafter also with uh, prx which is uh a uh, big audio Public. distributor, yeah. and we started creating these uh, these English episodes. Um, and the idea there was that you know, Israel, the Israel that people hate and the Israel that people love, um, is is real. Both of those places are really imaginary places, um, and really, you know, Israel exists mainly in the states in these sort of grand relatively flat narratives so there's well, a political... politics yeah politics religion war right those are, those are kind of the main narratives i think that people here in the states think about when they think about israel right and um and you know if it's politics then you can break that down to you know there's a bds narrative there's an israel advocacy narrative uh there's a you know sort of let's celebrate uh, Israel as a startup nation uh, uh, narrative. Uh, Israel invented the cherry tomato and, uh, you know, ways and uh, all these Israeli innovations and stuff Instant like that. Instant messaging, you know. Right, right. <laughs> right. And, and we thought that none of those narratives really captured the complexity and nuance of Israel. And we wanted to tell that story. We wanted to tell a story of a place that is a, a real place full of real people and there's you know a lot of beauty and a lot of uh, a lot of ugliness and um, I, I imagine there's there's many ways where you find stories you just have a lot of people looking for stories online reading reading places and just trying to find good stories to tell right early on that was a challenge for us um, and we you know told stories that we heard from uh, our families, from our friends, uh, from sort of a relatively small circle of people. And that was problematic because here we were, you know, working on a show called Israel Story. But in fact, we were four uh, very, very similar creators. I mean, uh, in fact, we, we couldn't have been much more similar if we tried. So we were all boys. We were all born in 1983. We had all grown up together. We all had one Israeli parent and one American parent. Um, wow. And, uh, you know, we were all friends. Uh, so it was challenging. So early on, we thought of all kinds of projects that would take us out of our natural habitat. Um, the first one that we did was called uh, Herzl 48. So Herzl Street is the uh, most common street name in Israel. Mm -hmm. It's like the Israeli main street. Right. Um, and there is a... If I remember correctly, 53 Herzl streets in all of the country. And wow. um, we chose number 48 because of, you know, 1948, the year that the state was established. And we went and knocked on every single uh, 48 Herzl street uh, in the country <laughs> yeah. to record uh, the story of the person that happened to live or work there. And what you do when you embark on a project like that is that you get a cross-section of Israeliness. So you get young people and old people and rich people and poor people. and So you were getting a nice cross-section. Yeah, and we did a bunch of projects like that. We did one project which we totally ripped off of This American Life where we spent 24 hours in an all-night uh, pancake house on the coastal road. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, talked to every single person who uh, walked through the door. We did a back-to-school episode where we chose 12 different kinds of schools. So an ultra-Orthodox school, a uh, you know religious Zionist school, a uh, Bedouin school, a school on a kibbutz, a school on a settlement, a special, special education school. 
and uh, spent a day in each school recording stories that we overheard over recess. So we tried all these things to sort of get out of our own little social bubble. Today, a large percentage of our stories come from pitches from, from listeners. Um, as, the sh- as the show grew, more and more people started pitching stories. When we return, Mishy explains how becoming a storyteller changed the understanding of his own story. It's a very um, humbling experience because you realize that your story is just that. It's just your story. And that your experience of life is, is really very limited. So if I've learned one thing from working on the show for now almost a decade, is it's how many different Israeli lives actually exist. All that and much more after a quick break. If you're enjoying this episode, you'll also want to check out ourfriendfromisrael.com, where you'll find the entire archive of interviews we've done, including with scientists, alien hunters, magicians, and celebrity chef Ron Ben Israel, who was discovered by the queen of daytime TV. What was it like getting a call from Martha Stewart? Actually, I thought it was a joke. I thought somebody is pulling my leg. And then when I'll arrive, they will all be laughing at me. <laughs> you can find that interview and our entire archive of episodes at ourfriendfromisrael.com. And now, back to our conversation with the host of the Israel Story podcast, Mishi Harmon. Are there things that you decide not to put on the show because they're, I mean, you obviously cover a lot of topics from the uh, funny to the serious. I mean, you have life and death in in there. Is there anything you've decided not to put in because it was just, it was too raw, too emotional? Well, I mean, for sure, there are many, many stories that we don't air for all kinds of reasons. And, you know, we, we only pursue a tiny fraction of the pitches we get and, uh, and there's all kinds of reasons why a story might not get produced. But um, as a category, the only thing that we decided early on that we would try as much as possible to avoid were, was politics. So while the show is apolitical in that um, we decided that there were plenty of outlets that were talking about you know, the conflict uh, in a direct right. way and that we didn't need to become another one of those outlets. Uh, And our show, you know, never asks our listeners to vote for anyone, never endorses anyone. Um, There were three election cycles uh, this past year in Israel. Um, If you just listened to Israel Story, you'd be oblivious to that. So in all of those ways, we are apolitical, but on a much deeper level, the premise of the show is inherently political and that is that a person is a person is a person and that we will only learn and progress as a society if we listen to each other know each other's lives and have enough um, have the ability to exit our own little existence and see what life might look like through the eyes of somebody else right so I'm wondering how do you protect your guests humanity and not make them a, a sideshow, you know, for the podcast. Look, I think that in our world, um, your reputation is everything. And we understood early on that unless we created a reputation 
of being extremely honest and true to the experience and to the story that we had heard while we interviewed people, no one would talk to us anymore. So, um, you know, we spend a tremendous amount of time with our interviewees. Um, and we'll often have hours of tape that are reduced to a single sentence in the actual uh, in the actual podcast. But it's crucial that that single sentence or however many sentences that character says represent or are reflective of their larger um, point and what they were telling us. So it's so easy to manipulate people's words and to um, you know take them out of context and to have them essentially say the exact opposite of what they were trying to say. But of course, what's most important to us is that uh, that we accurately convey um, what people were trying to say. And, you know, there have been plenty of stories over the years that we've aired that um, I or other producers on the show have disagreed with on a personal level, um, you know, people who made choices that we wouldn't have made or who live lives um, or have views that we don't have or we don't share. But nevertheless, it's very important for us to represent what they believe and what, you know, is true for them. And then each listener can decide whether that resonates with 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 her or with him. Mm-hmm. And and how has becoming a storyteller yourself changed your understanding of your own story? It's a very uh, that's an excellent question. It's a very um, humbling experience because you realize that your story is just that. It's just your story, and that your experience of life is is really very limited. So if I've learned one thing from working on the show for now almost a decade is it's how many different Israeli lives actually exist and how life in a moshav in in Emek Israel is completely different from life in Bnei Brak, which is completely different from life in an unrecognized Bedouin uh, village, which is completely different from life in Bethlehem, which is completely life different from life in Tel Aviv, which is completely different from life in Tiberias, and um, and and you know I'm I'm able to realize that my own particular um, circumstances and the family I was born into and the friends that I have and the schools that I went to and so on and so forth have uh, given me my specific outlook on life, but that is really all it is, and it's no more or less valid or important than than any other one. You studied history at Harvard, archaeology at Cambridge. That's where you wrote your PhD, which was about uh, a Protestant missionary in Ethiopia. Uh, you got your PhD at Hebrew University. So you have you have a varied background. I wonder how that informs your storytelling. I mean, from what I'm hearing is that your goal is to uh, get people to almost walk a mile in someone else's shoes. And I'm wondering if your background, uh, your own background, helps you uh, in that mission. I've always been very curious about different things. So, um, you know, I think that that probably um, helps you when you uh, are looking for stories because uh, we, the kind of storytelling we do is, uh, we're, we're very lucky in that uh, our, I, I always feel that I have like the best profession because I can be working on a story about uh, archaeology one day and a story about, you know, uh, I don't know, red peppers the next day and a story about, you know, for example, um, this morning I was trying to, uh, I suddenly uh, in the shower, I was thinking how many people in Israel have a Hitler-like mustache? Um, 
And then I thought to myself, hmm, maybe that's a story idea. Maybe I should yeah. go out and uh, do a story about people in Israel who have a Hitler-like mustache. What, is, is that an actual episode that people can listen to? Uh, it's not yet. It's a completely uh, germ <laughs> of an idea. Um, <laughs> okay. But stay uh, tuned in your podcast feed, people. That may be an upcoming episode. <laughs> so, so really, you know, it's it's extremely varied, and I think that uh, if you are curious about life, that helps you very much. Uh, and one thing that working uh, on Israel Story has done to me is that you really start seeing stories everywhere. I'll give you an example. Next to my apartment in Jerusalem, there is a uh, a locksmith store. You know that sells keys and and locks and stuff. Yeah. And then right next to it, literally the the next door over is another locksmith uh, <laughs> store. Um, it's like a Starbucks across the street from another Starbucks. Right. Right. Uh, except that Starbuckses are everywhere, and you know, in all of Jerusalem, there's only maybe ten locksmith stores or something. So, right. so I think in normal days, prior to working on Israel Story, I would just would have said, hmm, okay. But now with the having developed this sort of story-like antennae, I say to myself, hmm, surely there's a story here. And I already like start, you know, in my mind thinking what that story could be. So in my mind, it's, you know, a guy who was an apprentice in, in the original store and worked for them for 20 years and then, you know, betrayed them and uh, and opened up his own store right next door and... You know, there's a whole, I construct a whole story there. I have no idea if that's correct or not, but, uh, but you know, I, I start uh, essentially viewing the world through this uh, lens of, of stories. Right. So, so what was the story behind those two locksmiths? I don't know yet. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we're, get, we're getting a lot of sneak peeks of potential episodes here. Yeah. I, I just have a few more questions uh, before we uh, close. I, 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 I think I cut you off earlier. We, we got... Um, we got sidetracked when I asked you if you had a favorite uh, episode. And I'm not sure if you actually answered that question. And I don't want my listeners to be upset that we didn't get that answer. <laughs> um, so the truth is, I don't have a favorite episode. I mean, we've now released uh, 52 episodes in English as of uh, this uh, recording. And we've released 42 episodes in Hebrew. And I should say that the Hebrew and the English episodes have very little overlap. So uh, wow. it's... Uh, it's almost entirely different stories. Um, and um, of all of those episodes, of course, you know, some of them are dearer to my heart because I got attached the, to the characters or, you know, I worked for them on, you know, for, for lengthy periods or, or, you know, I just really liked something about them. But in many ways, I mean, you know, all of them are, are, are things that are, that, that, um, we've worked on and and feel feel sort of warmly towards right. um there are stories that you know there's a episode that we aired early on that's um perhaps our most popular episode till this day it's an episode about a ultra orthodox woman from Tzfat who uh is a serial adopter of um babies with down syndrome yeah um, i remember that episode yeah well i want to encourage our listeners uh to to of course subscribe and, and uh, go through all the archives of Israel story. Uh, Mishy, if you and I were to have this conversation in five or 10 years from now, where do you hope to be? Oh, uh-huh. I barely know where I'll be tomorrow. 
Um, <laughs> All of us are kind of in that boat. Right. I hope Israel's story continues to flourish. I hope that we continue to grow. I hope that our staff, which is now about 15 people, continues to grow and we reach a size where we can produce, you know, more regularly, more frequently. Um, you're doing about you're doing about what? How many episodes a year? 15 episodes? Um, yeah, uh, something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. 10, 15 episodes. Um, it's um, always an uphill battle to keep this uh, operation alive. Uh, so a lot of what we do is basically uh, um, fundraising, applying for grants, stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. I Before hope that the pandemic, you were doing a lot of live shows, I know, as yeah, well. Yeah, we do a lot of live shows, a lot of presentations now, a lot of Zoom stuff. Um, yeah. And, you know, I hope that we are able to tell more and more diverse stories of the Israeli society um, to reach audiences that we uh, typically don't uh, reach. I'll give you an example. You know, during Corona, the 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 biggest uh, the community that was hit hardest were the ultra orthodox. And uh, in fact, Bnei Brak was the first city in Israel that went under full lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and Though we do have many um, ultra-Orthodox people on our show and have told stories of ultra-Orthodox people, the kind of ultra-Orthodox people that tend to want to talk to us um, are sort of uh, on the the outskirts of uh, the mainstream ultra-Orthodox society, um, Mm -hmm. which is a very insular society and is, you know, hesitant to talk to outsiders, especially, you know, people like us who are very clearly different um, from them. So for, for, um, for those for those who don't know what Mishy looks like, Google his name and you'll see uh, you'll, you'll see his hairstyle is something to behold. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, getting to new kinds of populations uh, is always, you know, something that we try to do and I hope we continue to do. I hope we have, um, you know, we reach more listeners. I hope we uh, come up with new ways that I can't even imagine at the moment of telling stories. Uh, maybe it's through film and maybe it's through TV um, or in writing. Um, we've already, you know, ventured into these live shows, which are basically these theatrical uh, adaptations of, of episodes with uh a live band and with dancers and with live animation and video and stuff like that. So, you know, one of the real pleasures of this kind of creative uh, endeavor is that uh, that there's really no limits. So I I hope right. we continue to, to explore and to experiment and and have fun. Yeah. I just want to end with, with one last question uh, before I let you go. You're such an accomplished uh, interviewer. I want to know, is there anything... I didn't ask you that I, that I should have asked you. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, my secret as an interviewer is um, that I just spend a tremendous amount of time with, uh, with the interviewee. I basically, uh, I, you know, never leave before they essentially kick me out. And most often, there, there are some exceptions to this, but most often I don't come in with, uh, like, any sort of clear sense of a list of questions that I want to ask or anything like that. I just let the 
interview go in the direction that it goes. And above all, I think that, you know, if you think about what the experience of being interviewed, really what you want to do is uh, is to gain the trust of the person you're interviewing. So uh, if you think about it, I'm going into people's homes and kitchens and living rooms, and it would be unreasonable for me to expect them to immediately spout out, uh, you know, the their feelings about the most meaningful, joyful, you know, painful moments of their lives. So they're only going to do that if um, if they trust me. And uh, in that way, it's a little bit like dating. You know, you have to you have to sort of earn their trust before they can they can reveal themselves. My sister always says that vulnerability is the first thing that you look for in someone else, and the last thing that you want to show about yourself. And uh, and and that's really true. So you know, I I usually spend quite a lot of time just chit-chatting and talking about myself and having them feel that they can trust me with whatever it is that they that they really want to say and that they don't have to sort of edit themselves and uh so to answer your question as i as i feel very comfortable and and trust you fully i think you've done an uh, excellent job thank you thank you i appreciate that it means a lot coming from <laughs> you uh, well, Mishy, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. It was a, it was an honor to chat with you, and it was a real pleasure. And for those of our listeners who don't already, I highly, highly recommend subscribing to uh, Israel Story Podcast wherever you get your uh, podcast. So uh, uh, anyway, Mishy, I hope you uh, stay safe. And, and you too. Uh, thank you so much. This was a real honor and a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Our Friend from Israel is a production of FromTheGrapevine.com. Extra notes from this episode can be found at OurFriendFromIsrael.com. Want behind-the-scenes access to the show, including sneak peeks of future episodes? Join the Our Friend from Israel Facebook group. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the iTunes store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover Our Friend from Israel. Our show is produced by Paul Casco. Our head engineer is Everett Adams. Our theme music is by Chaim Mazar, a Hollywood film composer who grew up in Israel. You can visit our website at ourfriendfromisrael.com to find more episodes of the show. And if you have an idea for a future guest that we should interview, send me an email at bcohen at fromthegrapevine.com. I'm your host, Benjamin Cohen, and until next time, stay safe out there.